This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. Welcome to the Washed Up Female Podcast. Uh, today we welcome Jeff Freener from Karate uh, Secret Stars to the podcast. So thanks for coming on the program, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So full circle, I know I mentioned this to you over email, um, but while we were setting, up, setting this up, I did an interview with karate back in the early 90s for my high school zine with Eamon. <laughs> and it was your first interview is what he emailed me. And so the questions were horrible. Uh, but Eamon was super nice in his responses, and you guys even sent me the first 7-inch, the Death Kit uh, Nerve 7-inch. Um, so to complete the circle of horrible questions, we have to start with, I think a lot of people, I've talked about karate on the podcast, I've mentioned it on a lot of social stuff, and people have found out about them, but I think you know, for the, for the posterity of the podcast, I'd love to kind of hear how you guys got together in, in Boston, even if it's you know the 30-second tour. Um, just because I think a lot of people are interested. Sure. We, uh, let's see. Um, I guess, um, there were a few different people in the band, uh, very early on. Um, and I guess Gavin and I were sort of the, the two original members. And, um, in all honesty, I, I actually don't remember how I met Gavin now that I think about it. Um, but we played with a, you know, he was going to, he was kind of, um, I think he was going to BU. He went to BU for like a a year and then he went to Berkeley and he was kind of bouncing around in different bands. And he and I um, had looked for uh, a bass player. And I think we put up like an ad in a, you know, in a coffee shop where you tear off the the bottom of the flyer with the phone number. Um, And Eamon answered it. I remember. And uh, we uh, played with him a few times and he, um, you know, he was really good, but he was kind of like a, a Jersey kid who was, we, we kind of thought he was like a redneck or something like that at first. Um, and of course he, you know, became a doctor and is probably one of the smartest, most articulate and interesting person people I've ever met in my life. You um, were wrong. Did, I was, we were, we were wrong, but, uh, he definitely did, did not come off, um, 
that way when we met him. So we, we were kind of, you know, questioning if it was going to work with him or not, but, um, yeah, it did. And, you know, we started playing, um, we chose the name karate, which we thought was, um, kind of funny and, uh, you know, ironic. We, you know, I was, I think I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe 22 or 23, um, for, you know, we thought it was a great name for about 10 minutes and then we had a show and it was on the flyer. So we were kind of stuck with it after that. And, um, and Jeff was in this band called balloon that we played with. I think, I think we played our very first show in 1993, uh, with the loon who we instantly like totally fell in love with. Like we had, there was definitely like this kinship. We were both playing, you know, we, we all came out of like eighties punk rock, but the loon was doing kind of this, I don't know, you know, they, they would play accordion and piano and had this whole kind of acoustic side where they were doing this kind of, some kind of weird Americana thing. Um, but then this really kind of edgy, um, you know, really kind of intense, um, edgy punk punk thing also. Um, and, you know, we were kind of in the same boat, like we were all very interested in, you know, blues and jazz and different things, but, um, also, you know, we're playing in this kind of what, what we, you know, I guess it, at the time we didn't call it indie rock, you know, we thought we were like a punk band or something like that. And, so, um, and then Eamon eventually, uh, wanted to play guitar, um, because he also wrote songs and played guitar and he kind of engineered for a second record, this whole thing where Jeff was going to play bass and he was going to play guitar. And that's what we did on the second record. And then he, um, we, at the end of the tour for the second record, he told us he wanted to go to med school and quit the band. And then it was the three of us for the, the rest of the, you know, 10 years or whatever it was. Ah. That's kind of how we got together. Yeah. Now what, what did you like about the you know the boston scene or or not i know that there's there was so much going on and so much you know you were at berkeley there was so much thing you know uh, music going on were there did you feel connected to it or was it more i can't wait to get out and tour i guess you know the thing about boston and i think it's probably still that way this way today is it's really isolated and kind of uh there's a little you know, there was this whole thing going on where like there were still these major labels that were kind of like picking bands out of Boston um, to, uh, you know, have these little record deals. And of course they would inevitably fail. And, uh, you know, but it, Boston was really um, kind of uh, just kind of into itself and into its own scene and not super hospitable to outside bands. And what happened actually is I, graduated um, from Berkeley College of Music in 1992, and I moved to D.C. with my sister. I grew up um, near D.C., and I, you know, I saw a lot of D.C. bands in the 80s, um, and, and that kind of those bands were sort of my biggest influences, I think, um, at least in terms of, you know, punk rock or something. And I moved back there with the intention of starting a band, and I actually did start a band down there, and we only played a few shows. Um, and when I moved and I hated DC, I loved the people um, and the kind of music community there. And I had a lot of friends who had moved there from Pennsylvania or who I, I met when I was in high school down there. So it was nice in that way, but I just really missed Boston for some reason. There was something about Boston I really loved and still love um, just about the grumpiness and and isolation, <laughs> which are two kind of themes in my in my life that make me feel really at home. So... I moved back to Boston and, and uh, I started this band and I guess, you know, all the DC bands would go on these big tours and my friends were in this band called Hoover and I would kind of, 
you know, go to all the shows and go on these little trips um, and see them. And when I got back to Boston, I was like, okay, I'm going to start a touring band. Like I know a lot of musicians and I'm going to try to do this. And so that's, that's kind of what happened. I had this kind of little, you know, spark of inspiration from living in DC for, for a little while. Um, so, so we were, you know, we were like this band, we're going to get out of, of Boston. Like we, we want, we just wanted to go on tour. Um, that was, that was a big thing in 1993. And, um, that, that's what really motivated us. And then, I mean, definitely that's great about DC. I mean, your access to so many amazing bands and obviously discord, um, what, what kind of stuff did you grow up on and were your parents into music? Was it, how, how did you learn about bands? All, all that kind of discovery period. I guess, um, you know, my first musical influences, um, you know, I grew up in, in Harrisburg, not even in Harrisburg, but close by. And I like to compare my upbringing to the movie on the river's edge because my friends were, were really kind of similar to that. It was this, this, you know, definitely like a, a very, um, isolated <laughs> place and a lot of, you know, kind of people who were kind of inspired, but also completely lost, you know, there was no internet and there was no punk rock. And, you know, there was like eight of us in high school and we all got beat up and, you know, that, that whole story. And we put on our own shows and, you know, it was, it was really like this, this new discovery um, period of, of what even punk rock was. And, and, um, you know, I, I guess I now feel with all the nostalgia and everything, pretty fortunate to have grown up and had that experience of doing things, you know, people talk about DIY now and there is no, there, to, in my mind, it's nothing. There's like no DIY was. left. <laughs> There's no DIY. I mean, do it yourself then was like, figure out, you know, who the hell you are and like, what is the name of this music and what are the qualities of this, you know, social um, environment that you're kind of creating for yourself. And then all the putting on the shows and everything kind of came out of that. But um, yeah, I had a lot of friends who were really, um, you know, kind of bright, um, kids who were super had, had, you know, were, were really kind of open and had these great attitudes, but it was this, you know, Reagan era isolation of, you know, small suburb of a small city. And we would just have, uh, you know, we had this, a couple of different spaces. There was this place called, uh, it was like a democratic club. And there was this guy who, uh, he was actually in jail. His name was Mike rage. And he was in this band called the late teens in the, uh, in the eighties. Um, and I think he went to jail for some little drug charge or something like that. And he got out of jail and was kind of like the leader of this group of people who put on, uh, shows at this democratic club. And I would say, you know, we would get all the touring bands, but we were so close to Baltimore and DC that we would just have a lot of bands from Baltimore and DC. And, and we, I probably saw government issue more than any band in my entire life. I mean, I must've seen them <laughs> 30 times or something like that in the eighties and just over and over and over again, it was like they were there every month for years. And, you know, there were these great bands, like one band I really remember or two bands that were kind of a big influence, I think on karate and still, or at least on me. And they still kind of define the way that I think about rock music. Um, one of them was called Dane Bramage and, uh, the drummer for that band, uh, was Dave Grohl. And then there was, uh, this other band um, called Beefeater. Um, and both of those bands were punk bands, but they had these very, um, kind of this, this, this kind of pastiche of different 
um, influences. Like Beefeater had kind of this funk slap bass thing going on with this great bass player, Doug Birdzell, um, who was in a lot of bands in DC, and uh, this kind of heavy metal guitar. But they played, you know, this this kind of. I mean, we called it emo back then, actually, because of Tomas, the singer, and his you know, incredibly emotional kind of performances or something. The first time I ever heard the the term emo, there were other punks that were making fun of, of me and my friends because we were in Right to Spring and Beefeater. And this was the mid-80s, I think. And uh, those two bands um, were, you know, described as emo by these other punks because... I think of the vocal performances in, in the band and, um, you know, Race of Spring, of course, he, you know, it did something similar in Fugazi, like his, his, uh, you know, style of, of singing, I think. Um, but it was even more kind of histrionic in this band, the Rights of Spring. And Tomas was very similar. He, I think, I mean, he wasn't, he didn't sound like he, but he, you know, it was a similar aesthetic or something. And that's, you know, to me, what emo was and how, how I thought of it. And then, of course, in the 90s, it just kind of became this weird derogatory thing that I don't know what it, what it meant after that. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, that's that's for me what it was. It, I've I, This is, you know, the, the first time we've had someone, you know, on from the D.C. scene. It usually was Midwest or West Coast or East Coast, but more Boston, New York. But to kind of, you know, hearing a couple punks say that, and you're like, wait, what do you mean? We like this. And, and there's, were, were they making fun of it or were they just describing it? No, they were bands? making fun of it. They, they were saying it in a really kind of, you know, like you would say, and, and excuse, excuse me, listeners, but it, it was like saying you're a bunch of fags. And that's, yeah. that's and, I, and I'm quoting the language that was used in 1988. I'm not, I would never use that word today. And I think it's, you know, horrible language, but that's, that's how they would say it. And, and, uh, so, and, and it, you know, it, it meant, you know, some kind of like sissy punk rock or something or some kind of, I mean, it was certainly in kind of a, you know, derogatory and insult in a way. And, and these are people who were, I don't know what, you know, they were probably into, I don't know what they were into, like, you know, harder, more macho punk, I guess. And they considered, you know, the race of spring to be, you know, kind of the sissy kind of kind of thing. But you definitely liked it, and were like didn't didn't care that they said all that. <laughs> like yeah, let's let, yeah. let's like let's dive into this. Let's really um, learn more about. It. I mean, just those two bands definitely um, right to spring, and then you know having you know a band that you got to see Dave Grohl play, and obviously he was you know from Virginia and all that. That's great. That's a that is a great place to come from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when you ask about the the. I mean, there was that side of it and this other side, like the first records I ever owned were, um, Dave Brubeck records that I bought at a thrift store. Like I, you know, I bought all my clothes at, at thrift stores in, when I was in high school and junior high. And it was just kind of this punk skater thing to do. And we would just get stuff from the thrift stores and like silk screen the name of like our skating gang or our, our bands or whatever on it. And I would go through the records in thrift stores and buy these Dave Brubeck records that to me, I guess they still do sound this way, but they, you know, they sounded very, it wasn't jazz and, you know, there, there was obviously a lot of improvisation, but it was also this really kind of orchestrated um, thing. And it was almost like this prog. It had this like prog jazz kind of feel to some of those records where there were these really sophisticated 
parts that everybody in the band would play together. And, and that kind of played into some of this punk rock that was a little bit more, I mean, Dane Bramage was, they, they were these amazing players. And in fact, the, the bass player from that band who, I don't know his name, but he became a pretty successful kind of free jazz bass player, um, kind of downtown scene kind of guy in New York. Um, so they, you know, they were really good musicians and, and there was this, the, you know, those were the first records I owned were like these punk records I would get at shows, but then these jazz records I would find, um, at thrift stores and, you know, and I was kind of this, I was also a little bit of a high school jazz nerd at, at, at times. Um, you know, I played with jazz musicians in my high school, if you want to call, call us that. I mean, we were kids basically, but so there was kind of this double, you know, this double thing going on. And, you know, that's, it's funny because I think that, um, punk to me and the great thing that was so attractive about it that quickly dissipated when it became even a little bit popular, like in, in, in the eighties or something was that it was just this place that was into all these different things, like all these crazy things. I mean, I had friends who were like really into, you know, all kinds of weird bands. I mean, you know, we, I remember my one friend would play this band gong all the time. And then he would play Stravinsky's the rights of spring. And then we would play like SSD because the kids will have their say and fresh fruit for rotting vegetables. And like these records that are like, if you think of them today, they're so far apart from each other, but that's what it was. You know, for me, it was like this outlet where I could just, you know, there was no, you know, you just, it was just thing that you just bring in all this interesting stuff from all different kinds of music and all different kinds of like social scenes or something. And that's, that's what it really felt like. And it's funny, I'm, I'm reading um, Lexicon Devil, which is this oral history of the germs. And uh, that's what, you know, the, they talk about like Darby Crash and Exine Cervenka talk about this 80s LA scene and how that's what it was like, and they were really bummed out like when black flag started and it became there, these codes emerged, you know, this, this, this one unified kind of sound and you had to, um, you know, be a part of that, um, sound to be considered like, you know, hardcore or punk or something. And all of a sudden there's like 500 people at shows trying to, you know, kind of enact this code or something. But before that, it was just a bunch of people who were interested in all kinds of different things and kind of open-minded and they sort of lamented, um, you know, this kind of codification of, of punk rock, I think when black flag emerged and that's interesting. I mean, it definitely happens. There's uh, in my, the uh, seeing shows, it was, you could see a hardcore band. There was a emo band. Maybe there was a kid with an acoustic guitar and it all kind of made sense and you were okay with it. And then, when a certain genre got popular, everyone was trying to do that one genre. So there's these tours of just those type of bands, five in a row. And I was so more, I was more used to seeing different stuff. I didn't know what the band was going to sound like. Was it going to be post? Was it going to be a straight edge hardcore band? Or it seemed to, whatever got popular seemed to be the way people gravitated to. Um, sure. Yeah. And it sort of left the the scene where everyone was being organic about it versus, Oh, I'm going to get signed. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you know, one thing about going, you know, talking about karate and one thing I love about, uh, Gavin and Jeff, um, and Eamon, um, but I, you know, I spent a lot more time with Gavin and Jeff, but is they, you know, they kind of both also came from scenes like that. And when we would go on tour, I mean, we had a lot of fun playing in Chicago and New York and always looked, you know, it was really fun to go to these big cities and play, but I think the most fun that we had is we would end up in these tiny little towns like here and in Europe. 
um, where there were these weird little scenes and these weird little bands that were just um, not really very stylish and not really very, um, you know, kind of happening in any way, but they were just having so much fun. And, you know, we would end up a lot of these, especially in Europe, we'd end up in these like little, little towns in Italy and Germany where we just kept going back because the people were, it, it felt like this scene that we all grew up in, which was just like anything goes and it's just a bunch of weirdos who are having fun and kind of like appreciate our band for what they think of it instead of like what it's supposed to be or something. And, and that, that you know, I think that that was really reflected in, in, um, I think you probably still can go out and find these people who just, you know, don't spend too much time on the internet <laughs> are just young and having fun or something. And, you know, and kind of into just experimenting and, yeah. Is there a significance to the number nine? Uh, your first five full lengths all include nine total tracks. I don't know if there was any. <laughs> all the Glory Tellers records have nine songs, and the new Exiverse record has nine songs on it. Um, there's no significance to it, but it always... I mean, a lot of people have commented on that, and we've thought about it and talked about it. And to me, nine songs on an LP is like what a record is supposed to be. And, you know, the last one's some kind of epic thing or has some kind of, you know, weird commentary that just kind of goes a little bit farther than the rest of the record. And so I've always, I always kind of feel like it's done, you know, when you have nine good songs, I, I feel like the record is, is kind of finished. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the significance, I think. And it's just a personal, kind of a personal, you know, there's, there's always one, there's always one song that's too long. It's like, you know, seven or eight or nine minutes long. So on that side of the LP, you can only have four songs. You can't have five songs because there's not enough. The grooves aren't big enough. You know what I mean? You start losing the bass and everything. So. And then you had a long partnership with Southern Records. I mean, can you can you talk about that partnership? It just seemed like a great fit for you guys for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they still are around. Um, they just shrunk a lot. And, uh, you know, they still have all the karate stuff and they, you can still go to their website and buy karate records and Glory Tellers records and Isola records and everything. And, you know, John Loder, who started and ran that label, um, you know, that, that's a great story of, you know, he started uh, to record crafts um, and that's kind of how that label started and his studio started. And they just, yeah, early on, I think, you know, it had something to do, well, we were on tour with Warmers, and Alec uh, Mackay was friends with them through all the Discord connection, and they had an office here in Chicago, and when we came through Chicago, uh, Danielle, who was the, running the office in Chicago at the time, came to see us and got excited about us, and we signed a contract and just kind of stayed with them through the years, and um, yeah, I mean, they were, you know, when people bought records <laughs> it was it, we had a great great time i mean we sold a lot of records we would sell you know i don't know 12 or fourteen thousand during the late 90s when people were actually you know still buying a lot of records and it was great i wish that i wish we could do that now and then over the course of your records you know the, i think the sound really progressed so longer structures more guitar breaks was it a conscious decision to be you know be be write more challenging music um or were there other factors? I guess, you know, I mean, it was certainly conscious. Like we were certainly aware of what we were doing, but I wouldn't put it in the terms of let's do something more challenging. It was more, I think we were all, all of us were kind of, you know, Jeff played trumpet and was kind of a jazz nerd. And 
I was a little bit of a jazz nerd and, you know, Gavin was into all kinds of different things. And, you know, we would listen to soft machine records and talk, talk records. And, you know, those, there were a lot of bands like that, that were kind of like a point of reference, I think, you know, when we would go on tour and, and just listen to music and talk about music and, you know, the first two records, I kind of lumped them together. They were done very quickly and they're the records that people remember. And I think they're the most derivative of, you know, the rock and, and indie rock kind of thing that we were around at the time, but we spent a lot more time on the later records and, uh, we, I think never wanted to repeat ourselves. I think that was definitely, you know, we definitely never, we, we always kind of wanted to, you know, one up ourselves with the next record and which we did or did not do, you know, I think there's a really a mixed track record <laughs> with a lot of the songs, but we tried a lot of stuff, you know, we really tried a lot of stuff and I think we weren't really afraid to like throw away what we had built up with the last record. And we made it, we definitely pissed off a lot of people. I mean, every tour we did, we were playing the record that wasn't out yet and everybody was just buying the record that had come out the year before. And that's definitely you know, alienates people really quickly. So it was only kind of at the end, you know, we started having these bigger shows in Europe where we were playing for, you know, maybe many hundreds of people at some point and uh, regularly. And uh, we just realized we, (laughs) we kind of realized like, wow, people are really pissed off. Like they're really, they really (laughs) want to hear the songs. And it was just kind of out of not, you know, we kind of like, we would show, we'd get home and we'd be like, okay, you know, let's not be assholes. Like let's, let's do like the new stuff, but then let's do like everybody's favorite song off of these last couple records. There was a song sever and everybody was really into that song. And then everybody wanted to hear something off the first record. And so towards the end, we kind of, you know, got religion a little bit and we're sort of, you know, trying realizing that, you know, our fans opinions also matter. <laughs> I guess. Um, the, there's a lot, um, a lot of people talk about the artwork. Um, was there, a general consensus about the aesthetic that you guys wanted to present. It was very minimal. And I loved that about the artwork. Thanks. Um, I did the first two records myself. Um, and actually I did the first two records and then I did bed is in the ocean, which I guess is the third record. In fact, I did all of them except for unsolved. Um, and the first two I did like by hand actually before, I mean, it was before, it was before there were like, I mean, I guess there were computers and stuff, but my, I think I had a black and white computer when I was in grad school or something. You couldn't, I couldn't do much with it. So I cut out stuff and put it together on a big piece of paper and sent it to Southern, like on a poster board or whatever. And they took a kids, picture Kids of it have no it. idea how hard it is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I did. I think I like those better. Like, I think when you have to do stuff that way, um, and I've actually recently, not super recently, but in the last five years, I've made some flyers and stuff by hand. And I'm like, wow, these look way better than anything I've done in Photoshop or something. But, but, um, so I guess it's my, you know, to answer your question, it was my, there's definitely this kind of like minimalist aesthetic. That was kind of my little way, way of doing things or something, um, with some of those. And, uh, you know, my favorite one of all of them, I think is, uh, the one that was done by this artist, I can't remember his name. It's unsolved. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's, there's a very popular video game called, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, it's called, it's about, it's a car racing video game that, uh, is, was super huge. And they, 
they stole that artwork. I mean, it's, it's when you look at it and you look at the cover of unsolved, you can't believe like how similar they are. I mean, they're, they're almost identical. And, uh, I always wondered about that. Like they just basically stole that artwork and made this huge video game that was like, you know, it was on the cover of like every video game magazine. And it was even on like, there was a bit on Saturday night live and they had this video game on Saturday night live. And I'm like, that's the cover of our record. And it's very strange, but, um, so I, yeah, that's the only one I didn't do. Um, and I think it's definitely my, my favorite one or whatever. I, I was never happy with, I mean, I'm not a, I come from a family of visual artists, so I guess I have a little bit of a concept of it, but I'm definitely not a designer or artist myself as much as I would love to be. Yeah. I wish I could draw. I, I can't. I, that was my one dream. I dreamed every night that I could draw. It could never work. Um, <laughs> uh, the, I think you know the lyrics too with karate. They, they if you close your eyes, they they really show photos. They show an image, and you know it, they they were like small snapshots of feelings or events or places without really getting specific. And was that something intentional that you were kind of leaving room for this interpretation? Because you can really close your eyes and just kind of envelop yourself into it. Um, and it was something really beautiful about it. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I guess, I mean, I, well, the one caveat I should say, and I told you this, um, over email. <laughs> yes. Is, which uh, you can, you, know, you can me, totally mention. Hear, <laughs> yeah. When I, when I hear it, um, it makes me cringe. I mean, I hate karate. I hate my old music. I really don't like it very much. And <laughs> I like some instrumental parts. Um, like the second record has some really kind of rocking parts. And I think Gavin is like one of my favorite drummers that I've ever heard. And, uh, you know, some of those instrumental parts, I start, you know, tapping my foot and I'm into it, but I hate, I can't stand the lyrics. I think they're super pretentious and like trying too hard and, and self-conscious and embarrassing. And I, I generally, you know, don't, don't, that, that's my general feeling. Although there are a couple songs that I think are kind of successful and clever, but not, you know, two, two, maybe one on every record or something. So with that said, <laughs> Um, I guess but at um, that time, at that time you were, you know, was it, was it, do you feel like you were just young and that was just what came out? I think so. I mean, I think I was young and trying to be, um, too clever. And I think, um, my music still suffers from that. I think that, um, I try too hard and I try to be too clever and the music that I really love and that moves me, um, feels simple and natural. And, uh, when I listen to, you know, anything like Ramones or the Rolling Stones or, you know, all, all kinds of different, you know, kind of classic things that I love and that has really stayed with me over the years. They're way uh, much more simple and natural and come from the gut. And uh, a lot of mine, I think I'm trying too hard, maybe to be too, you know, trying to be that way or trying to imitate those things. And it just never, at least in my mind, um, the way that I hear it, um, and, and I always thought, you know, we were, I think we were much more popular um, in Europe than in the States. And uh, I think that's a reason why I think a lot of a lot of people um, in Europe don't understand the lyrics <laughs> and the music is and the music is pretty good. And, you know, the music at times, at least, is is, is pretty cool. So I kind of I, I often, you know, tell myself like that's that's why, you know, we kind of never hit hard in, in the U.S. or something like that. But um. But to answer your question, you know, I, the thing I used to always say in, inter, in interviews is, you know, if I wanted to say something literal, I would write a book or write a pamphlet or something. And I always kind of thought, 
you know, with the songs, they should be open to interpretation and not make 100%, you know, sense in some way. So I guess in that sense, at, at the time when I was writing the songs, I, I tried to keep them open and abstract and not too literal. I mean, for me, it was like, lyrics are probably the last thing for me. Sometimes I'm always like, what's the, what's the guitar riff or what's the, you know, the drum beat. And then like the last thing I remember is lyrics. So, um, I think for you, don't, don't worry about it. Most, most people, uh, (laughs) you'll be all right. That's a great thing too. It's good to know. Nobody's listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, another thing too, that I, I know that you're super passionate about is, you know, gear and, you know, you were writing for tape op and, you know, do you have a preferred, you know, guitar amp setup for the nerds out there that are, um, loving the, you know, the guitar tone and stuff that you've had over the years? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, or even um, currently. Yeah. Like I, so I have this, this, um, for, for, well, one thing I should say, you know, in the last 10 or 12 years and most of what I do, um, I play a lot of old, uh, music from the 20s and 30s on acoustic guitar, and I actually collect old Gibson and Martin uh, acoustic guitars from the 20s and 30s and 40s. So I've got about um, 20 or a little over 20 guitars that I've kind of accumulated over the past decade. That um, so you know I'm really in love with um, you know these particular eras of of uh, very specific eras of Martin Gibson acoustic guitars. Um, and then I have this uh, you know right now I, in the past, I think for five or I never really stopped playing electric guitar, but in the past, I'd say five years, well, since I moved to Chicago, um, I ended up in a couple bands. A few people asked me, and then I have, uh, Exitverse, which is, um, my new band. That's, um, where I play electric guitar and sing. And in that, um, I, I played mostly telecasters and, uh, I, right now I have a, um, a custom built, Telecaster by this this guy uh, Mark Rudders, um, who he actually builds um, every part of the guitar. He builds the knobs and fabricates the saddles out of steel and fabricates the the bridge out of steel. And um, and it's it's a very undiscovered. It just looks like a blackguard, like an old Telecaster, but um, it's really a special guitar. And that's of all my guitars. Um, it's the only guitar I own that's not a vintage guitar, and I own about 25 other guitars that are all um, mostly uh, from the 40s or 50s or 30s or 20s. Um, and I have two. I have a 1957 uh, Fender Esquire that's the best electric guitar I've ever owned or played, and then I have a 60, a late 66 Telecaster um, that I also love very much. And so that's that's what I play now. And um, I have, you know, I really like uh, Tweed, uh, Fender Tweed amps. Um, I have a 57 Super and a couple other old smaller Tweed amps. And the one that I use um, in this band is a is a Victoria, um, which is uh, this company here in Illinois that builds um, replicas of Tweed amps. And um, the one I use is a Super. It's a 210. Um, it's a Tweed Super um, of theirs that, that I like very much. It's like the perfect size where you can kind of you know, still, still play a little bit clean and then just turn up the volume knob a little bit. And all of a sudden, you know, it's this really raunchy, dirty tweed sound. And Do you use that for your effects or do you have some, you know, effects that you love to use as well? I have a few, um, I mean, I have, I own a lot of effects, um, but I don't use them much anymore. Um, and, uh, what I use now is, um, 
I use a spring reverb. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a, it's an actual spring reverb um, that's like a giant pedal with a with a Accutronic spring in it. That's made by this company called Mata Amp, um, and it really um, is a great sounding. It sounds better than like I have a couple of Blackface reverbs, you know, Deluxe from '64, and this reverb is better. It's just really wonderful sounding spring reverb. And then I use um, uh, I use a uh, full tone '69 or a white dot um, analog man. Um, so, well, I forget what he calls it, but it's the fuzz bass clone. Um, one of those, one one of those, depending on what is on the pedal board at the time. And then a couple other things like uh, I use a Diamond uh, Memory Lane Two analog delay that I love, and a couple like a full tone uh, tremolo. And but I own a ton of pedal, pedals. I have a, I have some kind of rare stuff. Um, I used to work for uh, Bill Finnegan uh, making the Clown Centaur pedal um, in the early 90s. And it, he gave me one of those when I worked for him that I that I still have. And then he just recently sent me, um, he kind of had a false start with this new one that he built a bunch of them and then he wasn't satisfied with um, how they were being produced. But he, and it's kind of funny because he built it and released it so that it would be a, something that sounded like a centaur that people that could actually afford. But then he stopped producing it. So now people are buying and selling those for like 800 bucks or something. But he sent me one of those, um, which I really like. And then I have a bunch of other stuff. Um, I won't go on. <laughs> no, I am a guitar player, so I might email you because <laughs> this is I'd be glad to provide the list. Thank you. Uh, no, it's just and absolutely fascinating. What? Oh, I was going to say I, I feel like I'm boring the hell out of anybody who's not a guitar player. So, well, it's it the it's the the listeners uh, who uh, always write in always ask about these stuff too. It's almost like could you have asked this? Like they're always you know <laughs> go deeper. So that was fantastic. Um, and then uh, I, I mean actually this was something that someone had mentioned to me a close friend. Um, and it's something that I suffer with as well. Do, are you still struggling with uh, tinnitus? And, you know, can you talk about how, you know, it sort of affected, you know, music or playing at louder volumes? Sure. Um, so in 2005, um, I was up in the mountains with my wife uh, in Italy and where it's super, super quiet. And I was like, I asked her, uh, what is that? crazy noise and she said there is no noise it's just, you know i mean it's so quiet there you can't um you know like you could hear a pin drop in the other room and that's when i first had tinnitus and it got progressively worse um over a period of months um it actually kept me awake for a couple of months and that's when i left karate um it was at, our last show was in rome um in the summer of 2005 and i just um was freaking out i was like what is wrong like i had this really loud ringing um in my ears when we were playing all these shows and I didn't, I, you know, I would try to put earplugs in, but they would fall out when I would sing. And it was just, I was like really, you know, scared. I thought I was like going deaf or wasn't going to be able to hear. And I, I mean, there were other reasons why karate, why I left karate or why we split, but that was sort of probably the biggest one, at least at the, my thinking at the time. And uh, so I went, you know, and I learned a lot more about it. And I went to two different audiologists, uh, one in Italy and one in Rhode Island where I was living at the time and um, kind of learned more about it and 
fortunately, like after a few months, it got a little bit better. Um, and I still, I mean, I have constant ringing in my ears and I always probably will. And, uh, but it's not nearly as bad as it was, um, for those couple few months, uh, you know, in 2005. And I, you know, I stopped playing in loud bands because I didn't, I, I couldn't sing with earplugs in because your jaw moves and they gradually work themselves out. And, uh, they, um, yeah, they just gradually, I just couldn't figure out how to, how to make it work. Um, and when I moved to Chicago, which was about five years ago, I guess, um, company here that I think, I think somebody told me about it, like Bob Weston or somebody mentioned it to me and said, yeah, you got to get these, like, these are the ones like that everybody uses. And, uh, they're really made out of this, um, kind of super soft, uh, silicone, just like if you, if you get like, you know, an oven, like, like something that you, you know, those rubber things that you put in the oven, like that you can buy like a pan that's made of rubber. That's what it's made out of this medical silicone. So, and then another thing I didn't know at the time is um, you can get these filters that um, you can change and they are different um, levels of, um, of noise reduction. So the ones I had were so, they were, the filters were so, they would attenuate the sound so much that I couldn't hear anything and I would sing out of tune and it was just a mess. But I got ones that was funny, but when I moved to Chicago, I got these ones that first of all, they were soft so they wouldn't fall out when I moved my jaw. And second of all, they have filters where I can actually kind of hear what's going on, but it's not at a deafening volume. So that, then I was kind of like, let's go, like, <laughs> let's, let's rock. So I started playing in all these bands and, it actually works really well. And now I wear, um, all, all the time when I'm on stage, I wear these, these earplugs. Like I never, I, I always play with them, um, when I, when I play electric guitar and, and I don't even, now I don't even notice, you know, that I have them in or it's, it's just not even something that I, you know, think about. And I kind of wish I would have known, you know, known all this, um, in 2005, but I took me a lot to figure it out. <laughs> that is, it's really, really funny that it, I had the exact same thing happen. I had playing in these bands. I had a permanent ring. It was A flat. Um, I couldn't, you know, same thing, couldn't sleep. I ended up finding these ult ultimate ears, and I have the filters. And I remember the audiologist was like, well, what filter do you want to buy? I was like, what's the top one you got? What is it, 25, 20? And she's like, are you sure? And I was like, yep. And so I have, I have, the, I have the 20, and I have like a 10. Um, and they're amazing. And every person that I know or tell, I say, it's like someone just turned it down. I can hear right. absolutely yeah. everything yeah. and it's just turned down. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have it's the, they're amazing. Yeah. They're great. Um, the, um, yeah, they, they, they kind of changed my career, which, which for the, for the better. Yeah. I actually had to quit a band too, because the same, and then I actually, I started to play music again recently, um, because of getting them. So it's, yeah, it's just funny. <laughs> I was here and I was like, well, that's something I'm not the only one that that story. Um, cool. I know That's you mentioned, great. yeah, I know you mentioned Exitverse, and I, I really want to, um, I love doing this podcast because the bands are still doing music. You know, if it's Davey from the Promise Ring doing Maritime or someone else always having, you know, another project, I love that you're still doing music. I'd love to kind of find out, um, more about it, what's next, um, and, uh, about, about the new Exitverse record. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, well, on the record, it's, 
myself playing guitar and singing and uh, John Dugan, who was in uh, Chisel, who's an old friend of mine, um, who I toured with a bunch um, way back. And uh, I saw that tour. Pete Crow. Okay. <laughs> House and, show and, uh, in Pete... Chapel Hill. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, you know, I just recently saw a picture of all of us from that tour and it's pretty, it's pretty great. Um, the, uh, yeah, we had, there were a number of house shows that were a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And, and then, yeah, the bass player is Pete Croak, who's in a lot of bands here in Chicago. He, uh, probably the best known band that he's in is Brokeback. Um, but he's, he's also in this band called Pink Avalanche and Tight Phantoms who were a Southern band and some, some other bands. And, uh, you know, it's very, um, it's a, well, yeah, we, we've just played, we've been playing for maybe a year and we recorded last year. We actually just played with Maritime a few weeks ago at the Wicker Park Fest and a bunch of other bands. And we, and we're going to, the record comes out in November. It's just about to be announced. I think by the time people hear this podcast, it will have been announced. Um, and uh, it'll come out in November and we're going to do, I think maybe like a 10 day tour uh, here probably between Chicago and the East coast, um, the first week of December and then go to Europe and, and try to just, you know, play, um, you know, play, uh, different shows. We we're playing Pygmalion Fest in a couple of weeks in Champagne and some other St. Louis and some other stuff. And, and it's, you know, it's really, I mean, I'm sure it probably sounds, you know, the thing I would say is it sounds obviously like karate, um, but the songs are much, uh, simpler and probably faster and there's there's definitely more of kind of like a rock um element to it and much less of like a you know cerebral jazz or or you know proggy element to it and there's there's a lot of kind of um well you know it's got a little bit of a trad thing like there's there's definitely i mean i was listening to a lot of like thin lizzy and and you know the stones from the early seventies and, and the faces and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's definitely in there, but also, you know, all the punk rock stuff that I kind of grew up with or that we all grew up with. And, um, so yeah, there's, there's that. And, and, um, yeah, you know, I've done these records with Chris Brokaw and I do a lot of stuff, uh, with, with steel string guitar. Um, I play probably two gigs a week, um, in Chicago, just doing solo guitar stuff. And, um, I play with this band in Rome um, that does uh, these Roman folk songs in kind of a kind of a updated way, you know, in the way that maybe Tom Waits does kind of old American songs. It's sort of a similar um, kind of concept, and I just finished a bunch of recording with them, and I'm working on a song with Sarah Love, this great songwriter from um, L.A., and, you know, there's all kinds of little things, and since Karate broke up, I think a lot of you know, I've done a whole bunch of little things and that's kept me really busy, like nothing very high profile, I guess. But And also too, I mean, I know that you're big into the preservation of music. Um and I mean just the interest levels of, you know, having the you know, all the all the good vintage guitars or, you know, knowing, you know, writing for tape op or what what's where did that interest come from that sort of preservation of music? I guess um you know, my, my first, the first guitar I ever owned and played when I was in high school was acoustic guitar. And, you know, some of the early, first stuff I ever learned were, were like these Mississippi John Hurd or Elizabeth Cotton songs that I would play in this kind of rudimentary way when I was really young. And uh, when karate broke up and, you know, I had this problem with my ears, I kind of picked up acoustic guitar again and I got really um, interested in that. And 
Um, I teach um, music at DePaul University. I teach a blues history course, and I teach a course on uh, Bill Monroe, who's this uh, uh, musician who basically his music became known as bluegrass music, and every great bluegrass musician was in his band at, you know, during their 50-year career. And so, you know, I've, I kind of have gotten, I, I think probably through acoustic guitar, like I've, I've sort of... Um, gotten really into a lot of um, old American music, um, but all kinds of blues and ragtime and, and different things like that, um, that were, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole, there's, there's a lot of different um, kind of repertoires of acoustic guitar and all these different styles. And I've spent a lot of time in the last 10 years or so um, kind of trying to master some of, some of those. And a lot of the things I do um, are just playing that old music. I do a gig at this place called The Whistler in Logan Square um, every Friday night, and for two hours I just play uh, old ragtime and um, all these old guitar arrangements that, um, you know, I think it's, I, I love it because people um, react to it who don't, you know, care about rock music or they don't care about my history or who I am. They just, it's music that anybody can um, you, know, you can just be going out for a drink and see somebody do that music and really, you know, see the beauty in it. And, and it doesn't have anything to do with uh, who is playing it <laughs> in a way. If it's played well and if it's played kind of honestly, um, it can be a really nice way to, um, you know, kind of share share an artistic experience or something like that. So, you know, I, I um, so, you know, and as far as the preservation, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not directly, I mean, the one, project that I was part of, uh, for a while, um, had to do with my, my uncle who is a communications professor at Clarkson university. And he has always been interested in music and, um, he kind of think of how to make this story as short as possible, but he, <laughs> it is he a podcast. Discovered, <laughs> that's true. He, he discovered, um, through, he was trying to write a book about music at some point and he was interviewing a lot of different musicians from the 60s and one of them uh was juma sultan who is best known um you can see him in the woodstock video um he was the percussionist for Jimi hendrix at at the time um that that video was was made and that's kind of how he's best known but he was more of a um jazz musician and kind of a promoter of a lot of um you know, kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, but, you know, the, the progressive late 60s and early 70s jazz um, and both in in New York, um, in Woodstock and in New York City were, were the two places that he was active. And my uncle went to interview him and uh, he mentioned um, just uh, kind of as an aside, I have this barn full of recordings that I did in the late 60s and the 70s. And he showed my uncle and there was literally a barn, like a giant barn that had um, hundreds upon hundreds of uh, analog reel-to-reel uh, -reel tapes of um, many, many great uh, jazz musicians and even some rock musicians um, that had never been heard. There were live recordings that he had done um, in his loft in New York or um, at concerts. He recorded every concert that he put on um, in the late 60s and early 70s in Woodstock, New York. And they're stuffed by Pharaoh Sanders and Sam Rivers and James Blood Almer and all these really um, people who are now very, very important um, musicians. Um, and this stuff has never been heard. So to make a long story short, um, we, my, my uncle and I and a bunch of his, I, I had a very minor role in this, but um, 
the my uncle basically procured um, an NEA grant, and the grant is called um, Access to Artistic Excellence. That's the name of this NEA grant um, that funded uh, Clarkson University um, basically to make this giant archive of all of this music and, and digitize it and um, make sure that it wasn't going to decay in, in Juma's barn. And that's um, amazing. So we yeah we spent a a, a few years um, just you know, organizing, you know, trying to get that grant. And I was just a consultant on the grant. I had really a minor um, role in the whole thing, but um, I, you know, I did a few kind of lectures based on that experience and I um, helped my uncle in kind of little, you know, in, in a very, again, a very small role, but um, you know, trying, trying to get this grant. And uh, now um you can actually go to the website. It's called junasarchive.com. Um, and all of this music is being digitized at Clarkson. And there's a guy at Harvard who made this, his PhD, uh, thesis. And I think that he, I don't even remember his name, but I think that he is now, um, the person who is, um, working, um, with this archive and making sure that this is all this music is, um, continuing to, you know, be, become part of this archive and digitized and organized and documented in all, all, the, right, all the right ways. So, um, that's so that, amazing. That, that's the that's the um, extent of my you know music preservation experience. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Just being able to you know be a part of continuing something that could have decayed and gone away, and no one would hear it again. Um, yeah, I mean, Juma, you know, just to, to represent this, I mean, Juma is this very cosmopolitan, super smart, um, wonderful guy who he knew what he had. It wasn't, you know, it, it, he, he was trying to do this also, but I think he just needed some help um, to do that. And in fact, there's there's a great, um, you know, through this, um, I have to go to my LP shelf to find the title of it, but through all this, um, there was actually an LP release, like a box set of all of uh Juma's music um, that that was was part of these tapes and like him playing with all these different different people and um, so there were a bunch of releases that came out of this um, I can't remember the labels that did it but um, so it became you know this real fruitful thing for a lot of people um, and it was all based on you know my uncle just basically stumbled over this archive and so quiet I can hear that the refrigerator is on. And I can hear the fabric from your sleeping bag How it sounds against someone else's floor There was a small ride I'd love to touch on, you know, teaching. I know what kind of led you to that. Was it out of the, just, I, I have all this information about this, this music. I love it. I would love to, you know, share it with people. Or did it kind of come a different way? I guess, um, you know, I tried, when I lived in Boston, um, and I was kind of realizing that, you know, no matter how great um, or successful my band was going to be, that it was really like a, a, a dim future <laughs> to be, to like just be in a band when, you know, when I was starting to get in my thirties, like, this is just like bad, you know, like I'm going to just burn myself out really quickly or, you know, all, all the terrible things that come with, you know, being an aging, aging, you know, rocker. So I tried when I was in Boston and, and I, you know, I, at some through when, when I was in karate, I got a master's degree um, and I wrote about music uh, for my master's thesis. And I, I always kind of flirted with um, academia a little bit. And um, 
what happened is um, my, my wife, who uh, she's Italian, but she got her PhD in Boston and her first um, job was in Maine. Um, and it was in, I guess, 20, 2009 or something like that. And we um, moved up to Maine for just one year. And when I, I, I guess the thing I wanted to say about Boston is, you know, it's like the best and worst place to be involved in music because there are half the city is music schools and some of the best music schools in the world. And there are so many musicians there and you can start these great bands and make these great records, but nobody goes to shows. It's this tiny little city. And the only people that go to shows are musicians and they're all your friends. And all the bands are just like this reorganization of the same people. And it just is, you know, there's no market for it. And so you know, teaching job, getting a t- job teaching music in Boston in university is just next to impossible. I mean, you really have to be, um, you know, incredibly successful. And, and it's just, I mean, I know jazz musicians in Boston who are, you know, far more successful than I will ever be. And they just can't even get a foot in the door doing doing that because there's way too many musicians and way too few, you know, every, everybody else. So when I got to Maine, I make a long story short, I got a job teaching at a, the University of Maine and also at, um, at, um, I'm blanking on the name of the other school, but I got a couple of teaching jobs up there. And since I did that, when I got to Chicago, um, it was relatively easy because, you know, I had the experience and I had designed these courses and I kind of, um, you know, had, had, had this stuff on my resume where I had taught a couple years in university and, uh, it was a little bit easier once I got, got here, um, to do it. And, you know, I just really wanted to avoid the guitar lessons route, which is, you know, <laughs> kind of where everybody goes. <laughs> like, you know, when I, when I was in college, I gave guitar lessons and bass lessons. And it just, I just, you know, for me, I just wanted more than, than that route. Of, so I, you know, I, I tried, I just tried really hard to do it and eventually worked out. And, and you know, I loved the, I mean, when I went to, Berkeley and even in high school, you know, I had a lot of crappy teachers and a few teachers that just blew my mind with their, just because they were so deeply in love with what they were teaching. And, you know, I really am trying to be that person. I mean, I, I teach this course on the blues and it really just teaches itself because it's, there's so many, you know, when you look at a video of Lonnie Johnson, I mean, he just is this beautiful, dignified man. And, you know, he plays this um, guitar playing that just like tears your heart out, you know, the first two notes. And it's very easy to get people excited about that. And so, I, you know, it's, it's something that I love and, and um, I, I look forward to it. I really look forward to it. It just, you know, reinforces my love for the music, but it also is this experience where I can share with younger people and kind of, you know, get off on their enthusiasm about it and you know there's I have lots of students who are just trying to start bands and you know get out there and do these things and it's really fun to watch and be a part of I think marketplace on oh. npr radio they're still right. using the last wars as his bumper music and it's 
you know, I'm with my dad or someone listening to NPR. It always makes me giggle. Um, you know, is it, is it funny that it's still, they still use it or I just, someone was asking and I thought it was really funny. <laughs> no, it's cool. I mean, do they, you know, I know what you're talking about, but do they use it actually? I mean, I know it's on NPR like all the time, but is it actually like a theme or do they just play it all the time? It's you know what I mean? Bumper, like, I, I think it's, I think it's bumper music for, hmm. I thought it was for, Marketplace. Maybe For Marketplace, be... right. Yeah. Well, I'm psyched about it. There's this guy, um, his name's Brendan uh, Benazak, and he uh, was a karate fan, and he became a producer of all these NPR shows, and he actually um, invited me to come on to Talk in the Nation and play music and do a little interview, um, which was, man, I don't know, probably 10 years ago or something like that. And I've always, you know, all the most of the music... I do now, I kind of go out of my way to make a uh, vocal, t- I always call them TV mixes, which I think is like the seventies term for them, but they're, they're uh, mixes without vocals. And I always send him, I'll send him the record and then I'll send him the mix without the vocals. So he's put tons of my stuff on NPR and um, yeah, I'm psyched. I mean, it's cool. It's fun. I love it. You know, I, I really miss WBOR in Boston in, I, I don't like WBEZ in Chicago. I don't think it's a, we don't have a good NPR station. So market, you know, a lot of the, cause I'm like kind of a news addict. So all the news shows, they don't play here. They just play like all kinds of arts shows, which are kind of boring to me. But the, so I don't listen to NPR here. I just listen to WBUR podcasts occasionally, but yeah, I'm psyched. That's great. I'm glad they're still doing that. That's, that's cool. It's <laughs> always awesome. Um, I just love to kind of finish up and say, you know, what's next? What what haven't you done that you want to do? You've done amazing things, and I think produced. Even though you do hate the late '90s part, I think the the volume music and just you keep you're creating constantly. What haven't you done? What what's getting you excited next? Yes, you have a new record with Exitverse, but was there something kind of crazy that's in your head that you're like, I can't wait to do this? Um, no, there's probably not like. You know, I'm 45. I actually turned 45 on the 15th, which I think is Monday. So it's kind of like a milestone. Yeah, and and uh, no, man, I I'm like a homebody. I want to hang out with my wife and watch movies, <laughs> and I'm just trying to support those habits. Like, I just want to like stay home and strum at the guitar and learn. I mean, I love practicing. I practice. I practiced four hours a day for 25 years and I want to do it for the next 25 years. And it's my favorite thing to do is learn, you know, I love learning like an old, you know, country guitar part or, or like a, you know, like a Steve Cropper lick or something like that. And, you know, I just love to, I, it just, I just enjoy doing those things and I just am a homebody. Like I don't even go out that much and I love to play shows, but I hate to travel and going on tours. I was like a, kind of an emotional ordeal for me, but so that, you know, I, I just want to make it to retirement. <laughs> like I just want to, uh, you know, enjoy my life and, you know, enjoy my, I have a wonderful wife and, and we spend a lot of time together and, you know, have these long talks and take walks through Chicago. And that's like my absolute favorite thing to do. And I just really want to do more of that. And I, you know, I love making music and I'll always write my own songs and I kind of slowly um, do that. And I don't even, it just kind of happens, you know what I mean? Like I don't, it's not, I, I don't have these big ambitious um, projects and uh, I just, um, I just 
okay, my wife just handed me a note that said dinner is ready. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I just want to enjoy my life really, and um, that's that's my that's my big project.